What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Don't use tech as an end. It is only useful when it comes to human flourishing when you're deploying tech for very specific intentional purposes that you care about. As soon as the tech becomes an end in itself, that's when we start to see problems. Hey folks, welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. This is Mark Devine, your host. Thanks so much for joining me today. We're going to have an incredible show with my friend Kel Newport, author of Digital Minimalism and one of my favorite books, Deep Work. Kel, so stoked to have you. Um, I'll, I'll introduce more, but geez, you know, it's really good to have you back on the show and I miss you, man. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been too long. It has. I've been tracking your work and I know that you're, you're a university professor, you're a computer scientist actually, but I loved when I read in Deep Work just how you organize your life. And so it really was not a surprise that your next work was digital minimalism because you already are kind of a minimalist, and it was, I'm really uh, stoked that you went deep into that subject to help other people appreciate the benefits of that. But so let's, you know, before we kind of get into all that cool stuff, let's remind our uh, listeners or those who aren't familiar with your work or who you are as a person, you know, just a little bit about your background and how you came to teach computer science and, and what it is that really fires you up and makes you unbeatable. Well, I really do two things. Uh, so uh, I am a computer scientist, and, and that's what I've been training for my whole life. I went right out of college into MIT, got my doctorate, and now at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. I focus on the theory of distributed systems. That means I do the sort of non-useful type of computer science where we solve equations at the whiteboard <laughs> instead of actually building useful things with computers. Oh, wow. But I have also been a writer in parallel with that whole progression. I wrote my first book when I was still an undergraduate. Digital Minimalism is my sixth. And so I've been writing at the same time uh, that I've been a computer scientist. It used to be the case that the books I wrote were just topics that were relevant to my own life at the time. So for example, back in 2012, I wrote a book about career satisfaction. I wrote it then because I was entering the job market. And I wanted to know Mm -hmm. about career satisfaction. Uh, In 2016, I wrote Deep Work because I really cared about how do I get tenure? Or more Mm -hmm. generally, how do knowledge workers succeed? And I really went deep on the the value of focus. I will say, however, Mark, that in recent years with this new book and the book I'm working on now, I've really seen my mission starting to sharpen where I no Mm -hmm. longer see my life as a writer as something different than my life as a technologist. I now Mm -hmm. see myself primarily right now as a technologist who also writes about the impact of these technologies on our culture. And so that's what's really been getting me fired up, starting with deep work and with my new book, Digital Minimalism, and the book I'm writing now about email that's called The World Without Email Mm -hmm. is all me trying to grapple with the intersection of tech and our culture, as I think these are some of the more important issues facing us right now. So in a way, it's it's your apology to culture for screwing us up with all your computer stuff. Yeah, this is my apology for what I've wrought with my academic work, right? <laughs> what you've wrought on society. Well, you're not alone. There's a whole like you know, whole bunch of other people working in that area to distract us and to take us away from you know important things like uh, spending time alone and you know being quiet and that type of stuff. So let's let's talk about deep work before you know we get into your current work or, or your more recent work with digital minimalism. One of the things I loved about deep work was this notion that if you want, like you just mentioned, if you want to really contribute and not just skim the surface of, of social media news and, and, you know, common, you know, just like languaging in a social context, but if you really want to go deep and understand something deeply, then you, you have to kind of escape and different people have different ways to do it. H- how do you do it? Like, how do you I mean, not escape from reality, but escape from unreality and go back to, you know, 
where the true information lies, right? Which is going to be found inside, through insight, intuition, as well as being able to really penetrate a subject by studying it, you know, with deep concentration. So tell us what your discovery was, that what worked for you and what works for some other, you know, high-level thinkers and authors and creators. Well, for me, like with a lot of people, there is two components to trying to really prioritize depth and do the type of thinking that moves the needle in knowledge work. So one component is actually just minimizing the amount of non-depth stuff on your plate. And so this is an ongoing aggressive effort to try to make sure that you're not adding too much shallow obligations on your plate. So there's this, this overall effort to minimize something that uh, I work very aggressively at. I'm, I'm sort of trying to be very careful about what I allow on my plate, what I agree to, what initiatives I take on. I'm mm-hmm. sort of notoriously hard to track down. I say no to most uh, invitations to do most things because mm-hmm. I don't want my time being taken up. Right. Then when you focus on what is on your plate, I do something that a lot of other people do, which is I oscillate between periods of deeper work and periods of shallower work. And I do that on many different scales. And so that might mean on the scale of an individual day, I like to start with deep work. And then once that energy is spent, maybe move over to some of the logistical stuff. On the scale of a week, I tend to have a balance of some days maybe are a teaching day. And as long as I have to be on campus teaching, I'm going to put other meetings on that day. I'm going to dedicate that day more towards non-deep efforts. But then other days in that same week might be almost entirely dedicated to deep thinking. And then on the scale of seasons as a professor, I do the same thing. I'm entering summer right now. That means I'm going into hibernation mode. I'm about to Mm -hmm. become very hard to track down because I'm going to be reading and writing for months at a time. And Mm -hmm. so having a clear separation between depth and shallows at multiple different scales, coupled with an overall commitment to being incredibly careful about what I agree to let on my plate, has helped me get in enough of the deep cycles to keep doing interesting things. Mm. You know, that, that's awesome. Um, and it sounds simple, but there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness that goes into what you just said in those two big categories. You know, saying no in service to that bigger yes, right there, right? The self-awareness required to know what to say no, you know, yes to is really the most important thing, right? So that, that means really getting clear about what is your unique gift to the world, you know, at a broad level, and then how you're going to express that and really dive into that at this point in time, right? And that's going to change as you evolve. For you, it's changed as your interests have evolved, right? And then the other thing, go ahead, yeah. Well, I was just going to say briefly, there's an irony to that as well. It's absolutely vital. And the irony is, as as what you're doing, the thing you're working deeply on gets more developed and gets more impactful, the demands that take you away from it grow as well. It's this this weird binary coin that sort of the yeah. the more you become useful, the more your deep thinking becomes useful to the world, the more the world is going to try to take you away from your deep thinking. Which and and it's difficult. I mean, there, this is social reciprocity. Just yesterday, I was showing my wife. I said, "Look, I cleaned my inbox on Tuesday uh, earlier in the day, and and here it was Wednesday afternoon, and I was saying there are now nine requests in here for my time from people I know." And every one of those is going to require like a relatively delicate social dance to basically say no to. So it, it gets pretty mm-hmm. hard. I mean, uh, anyways, I think it's worth emphasizing, you're correct to emphasize, it's hard work, but it's, wor- it's work that, that's absolutely vital to do if you want to keep doing things of impact. Right. And the irony there is the distractions come, as you said, because of the deep work and because of aligning, you know, with that purpose or that gift. But also um, the requests are are in alignment with it, meaning like the more of an expert you become, let's say on digital minimalism, the more avenues you're gonna open up and the more uh, experts and and opportunities for things like this podcast that open up and it's all in alignment with this new vein of gold that you're plumbing, but you still, then you have to do that like the next layer of selectivity, right? And so it's not the old stuff that's distracting you anymore, it's new stuff, new people, new interests, new, you know, avenues. And like you said, that's just a never-ending thing. You can't get rid of the distraction. You just keep on sharpening the saw of your awareness on what to say yes to and what to avoid. So you can keep going deeper in the right vein or follow the vein appropriately, to use that metaphor, you know, all the way down to the depth. That's fascinating because, you know, we could literally spend the entire time talking about how to do that, right? How to, how to develop that type of awareness. The other thing that you said, that this idea of having a battle rhythm is really interesting. 
you know, knowing how to spend your days, where your energy is going to be best spent on deep work, you know, the, the deep work. And then also, um, you, when you're doing something like you, where, where you might be doing reading and writing and then teaching, you know, some people would say the teaching is the deep work, right? Is, is every bit as important because you have to be engaged. That's where you're offering your gift to the world just in a verbal sense as opposed to a written sense. So I'm curious as to why you would categorize teaching, you know, as, as shallow work and, and reading and you know, writing and thinking as deep work. Well, that's, that's a good question because what, what I should clarify, I guess, is the reason why teaching tends to anchor a shallow day is not the actual time in the classroom. Because I agree, when you're actually communicating, that's very deep. Right. I mean, what we're doing now, for example, I consider deep work. Or mm-hmm. when I'm in front of, in front of my students and teaching a class on computational theory, that's deep work. Okay, it's more good. that teaching good. brings me to campus. And once I'm on campus, now it's, I can do office hours. I can do these meetings with students. I can do, so it's once I'm on campus and in a, in a, I'm here and available, my thought is let's batch. Let's make this a day. (laughs) If if I'm going to be here and doing other things, let's make this a day where I do everything uh, I can, which is like, I'm on campus right now recording this. Um, I have a full afternoon of meeting schedule, they can say, well, let me take advantage of that. Whereas yesterday I was at home all day uh, and working on one thing deeply the entire day. Right. So these blocks, the deep and shallow are, are pretty large blocks and you fit different things into that block that go in, go into those categories. Yeah, that's right. right. They can be, they can be on all sorts of different scales, but they're often, they're often quite large. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that rings true for me. Whenever I've tried to do, you know, I'm going to do an hour or 90 minute block of deep work and then I'm going to go do something else. Uh, it, it's just really I don't know uh, uh, what the right word is. It's just difficult to really go deep and stay there because you're constantly getting pulled out. So for me, it's got to be like a day or like you said, a week. Next week, I'm going out to be alone to finish a manuscript and that would be my deep work week. So it sounds like um, you have kind of the same thing. But I love the idea of seasons and that's kind of unique to your profession. It's difficult for other professionals to have a seasonality, I think, to their battle rhythm. But I think that would be interesting to think about, right? If you're a, an executive, you know, can you uh, arrange a sabbatical or something like that during a summer month to, to just go deep on something? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah. I, I think that would be a good idea. Um, we, we see seasonality on a, on a more of like a weekly scale. We're seeing this starting to emerge in software development where, for mm. example, the sprint methodology has become big. Where they're recognizing sometimes the right way to develop a software product is to actually take two or three days and make it clear that this is all you're doing. You're just working on this. You're just doing one thing. You're just going deep. Uh, And then when the sprint is over, it's a completely different phase. Okay, I'm not in a sprint and maybe we're we're being logistical, we're planning. Uh, And in general, though, what, what I find surprising is that we have a whole economy based off knowledge products. We have a whole massive portion of our economy that's based on us using our brain to create value. And yet we mm-hmm. understand so little about mm-hmm. the actual, let's say, cognitive or physical best practices for doing it. I mean, if you talk to a professional athlete, they're completely locked in mm-hmm. to their body and their body's performance. They know about breasts. They know when they're mm-hmm. going to they're going to get the best uh, strength, when they're, when they're going to be weak, how much to push it, when not to push it, how to build towards peaking for an athletic event. They really understand their physical performance. And yet when we look at elite cognitive fields, we don't put nearly enough thought into understanding, hey, this brain is a part of our body. It's not that easy to figure out. And we don't think about what it needs or how it actually operates or how we get it to do things at high performance, what rest it needs, what's the cost of context shifting. And I think this is one of the big shifts I'm seeing culturally sort of in the years after deep work is that we're beginning to see a growing interest from, let's say, the business world, the management world, and actually starting to understand how do these brains work? Because it is brains that are creating all of the value in our companies. It's brains, if I'm Eric Schmidt, that's producing the code that makes Google all the money. It's brains, if I'm an author that produces the books, they're going to sell a lot of copies. How do these brains actually work? And I'm starting to see a growing interest and maybe we need to reshape how we work around the reality of the human brains, as opposed to what we're doing now, it's where we just treat people like these black boxes. And all that matters is they have the right objectives, the right motivations, they're given the right information, and then they'll just like a computer processor execute. And I think we're realizing that black box analogy doesn't work. We have to open that black box, we have to confront the messy neurons inside and figure out how do we get this biological reality to produce really good things as sustainably as possible. Right. 
And I might add, it's not just the brain. <laughs> it's the it's the whole mind, the the heart, and the uh, and the biome, and you know, because you know, my experience is it's not the cognitive um, capacity that has held me back. It's it's emotional engagement, and being able to really um, bring the passion and the emotions every day to the deep work. So that's an interesting thing. That's where I'm, I'm heading into, you know, my next book is all about um, how do you tap into heart and emotional engagement f- to build a, an elite team? You know, and that's why the, the people would be surprised, Cal, and maybe you would as well. It's like Navy SEALs, you know, they're, they're really cognitively intelligent individuals, but it's their heart, it's their emotional engagement that allows them to dominate, you know, their missions. And I don't think that's ever been really studied or written about. So I think that's a, a, an interesting area to you know, to go down. Yeah, it's a great topic. I mean, it's just an example of one of these threads involving how our mind works, how our brain actually works that we, until recently, we haven't been polling. We just really have been wanting to see people as these black box computer processors, you know, give them tasks, make sure they have the right information, make sure you're paying them the right money so they feel motivated and it'll just work. And and it's really a much more complicated story. For sure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, there's so much to talk about there. I mean, that's where AI is missing the mark, too. But l- let me talk about um, your own practices slash processes for ensuring the highest quality deep work session. And I'm, I'm sure it's a, you have some, some similarities depending upon it's a short, medium, or long-term deep work session, but there's probably uh, some nuances too. But what are some of the, the core practices that you do to ensure you're, you're engaged, you're focused, you know, you're, you're able to tap into your intuition, you're able to get the most out of those periods of time? Well, I care a lot about clarity so it's important I know what I am trying to accomplish in the session. Mm, this is, in some sense, the artifact I'm trying to produce, be it a sketched out plan, a certain number of words, or progress on a proof that I'm doing uh, as an academic. Location matters for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, there, there's several different locations I use for deep work. Depending on my mood and the type of work, I'll choose the location, but they're, they're locations I, I associate with deep work. My my office at my home, for example, where I do most of my deep work, uh, has no computer. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a separate sort of household home office where we have the printer and our computer and we pay our bills and our filing cabinets are. But where I do my work, I've actually replicated an academic-style library. I, I had a custom-built library table of the type you would see in sort of a university library with library lamps next to a dark wood and wood, wood cases looking outside hmm. of windows. Cool. I put effort into that. It's not just a, a sort of eccentric quirk. To me, that's actually a professional investment because that's a place I go when I need to, to think deeply. And when I get there, I know that's what I'm doing. I have a similar place outside and certain walking routes I do. So clarity is important. Uh, environment is really important. And then for certain types of deep work, I'll also have some sort of ritual. Usually for me, the ritual involves getting my blood flowing. So there'll be a, mm-hmm. a particular type of walking route I'll do maybe about five minutes long clear the head, swap in the relevant variables, get the blood flowing so that when I get down on the desk, I can lock right in. Wow. Interesting. Um, anything uh, physically, nutrition, you know, nootropics, anything you do there that would fall in maybe the hack category that that's, you found work for you? Well, I, I found there seems to be a, a pretty big connection between fitness and cognitive ability, the sort right, of the, sure. the fitter I feel, the better I do. Uh, actually, you would probably appreciate ever since my ever since my days as a, a collegiate rower, I have always been a big fan of Navy SEAL style workouts. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. most of the I do calisthenics every day, usually before the sun rises. I have my pull up bar and dip station built in my garage, and I still nice. I still have the classic array of pull-up grips, I think I learned from one of the classic Navy SEAL workout books, right? Mm-hmm. The wide grip, the normal, the chin-ups, and the close-together mm-hmm. <laughs> hand grips. I still do my dive bombers and my, my burpees. Um, so I do calisthenics every morning. 
every morning, usually uh, 30 pull-ups of various grips uh, and then push-ups and dips. That helps. And then nutrition, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty, I would say that matters for me, especially during the day. I'm pretty locked in with a sort of Mark Sisson style primal mm -hmm. uh, approach to my diet. And it makes a really big difference. I can absolutely tell, depending on what I eat, how much I can concentrate. And so, I mean, I think that's an area where we're also just starting to recognize the connections. Yeah, absolutely. Physical fitness and cognitive fitness are not really two separate magisteria. Right. I agree. That's cool. So now let's kind of shift to the, um, the nemesis of... Uh, Tech, you know, personal technology, right? So that little iPhone of mine, I've been dealing with that too because, you know, we all have behaviors that if you were to take a broad definition of addictive patterns, I don't think there's anyone listening here who doesn't have some sort of addictive pattern. And I don't mean that in the negative sense, like being addicted to some damaging substance like alcohol or drugs, but, you know, pretty much anything that that you do. For, for instance, work, like work is a big addictive pattern for those of us in the West, and, you know, it's just part of our culture. It's a, it's a cultural bias. So it's something that, you know, important to take a look at. Anything you do obsessively that takes you out of balance, you know, you could, in my opinion, you, you know, put under that label of an addictive, you know, quality. And certainly iPhone use or, you know, a, a mobile device has made it easy for us to really expose those patterns, Right. And that's the topic of your next book or your, your book, Digital Minimalism. It's not the topic, but it, it kind of like points to why that's such an important subject is, you know, here we all of a sudden since 2007, we have literally technology in the palm of our hand. And it's a technology that that is so addictive or exposes our addictive tendencies and then roots them in, you know, pretty deeply. And I think everybody, like there's very few people who don't kind of struggle with it and they, and they may not admit it, right? But they're struggling with it because it's taking them away from things that they, you know, that are healthy. It's pulling them out of balance and it's causing a lot of distress, I think. And so when did you start noting, noticing this, Cal? And, and um, how did you get, you know, passionate about this kind of deep dive you did on digital minimalism? It was really after Deep Work came out. And I was on the road talking to readers. And mm -hmm. I kept hearing the same storyline, especially starting around late 2016, early 2017. I kept hearing the same storyline, which is maybe I buy your premise about what's happening with tech in the workplace and we're more distracted because of email. But what about tech in our personal lives? There's something going on there that was making people uneasy. And so I, I looked into it. I said, well, what's going on here? Why do people feel that they're uneasy? Is it, is it what they're doing on the phone? Is, is there something specific with, with the phone itself that's making them unhappy? And what I discovered is that it seemed to be an issue of autonomy. So mm -hmm. it's not that what people are doing when they look at that screen is in itself or in isolation bad, right? So it's not like smoking a cigarette or something where, hey, right. that smoke is immediately hurting your lungs. Right. Uh, it was more the sense that they were looking at that phone more than they needed to, more than was useful, more than was healthy, and to the exclusion of things that were more important. It's like they, they began maybe just looking at the phone during idle times that they otherwise would have been bored, but then it began to creep out of that original assignment. And it began mm -hmm. for a lot of people to displace more and more of their leisure time, more and more of the time they used to do other things with. It was pushing it to the side. And they look up, let's say, seven years after buying their first iPhone and realize I'm on this thing constantly. I do a fraction of the other types of meaningful activities I used to do. And when I am doing those activities, I can't help but look down at this screen, even though I know what I'm doing is more important than it. So it's that mm. sense of I'm losing autonomy over directing my life towards the things I think are so meaningful. That's what people are becoming uneasy about. Yeah, losing autonomy or agency over your life almost. Like that, that phone starts to own you is the feeling, right? Like you said, even if, and they've done studies, even if the phone is just in front of you and you're not looking at it, your productivity, right, is about 18 or 20% less than if your phone is locked in a drawer in the other room. It's crazy. Well, and, and, and I, I have to add that sort of the dark underside of this story is it didn't used to be that way. This is one of the most interesting things that came up in my research for that book is that we forget now that when, let's say, the iPhone was first released in 2007, mm -hmm. we did not use it the way we use it today. Like Today, mm -hmm. we're used to this idea that the phone is a constant companion that we look at all the time, but that's not the way we use the original iPhone. The original iPhone was a tool. 
I mean, it was designed mm-hmm. to do a few things that we already did really well. It made making phone calls easier. It was a much better music player than the iPod that came before it. And it combined the iPod and the phone into one device so you didn't have to carry two devices. And then it also allowed you to look up maps, which was really useful. It was a tool you deployed to do a few things that we were already doing really well. What happened, as far as I can tell in my research, is essentially the social media companies took the lead, and in particular Facebook. When it came time for Facebook's IPO, which was a few years after uh, the iPhone came out, they had to switch from user acquisition mode into revenue generation mode so they could hit the price targets that Wall Street was setting for the IPO. And so there's this period where social media reinvented the whole social media experience to essentially exploit psychological vulnerabilities and retrain us to look at this phone all the time. That behavior, Mm -hmm. in other words, is not at all fundamental to the technology. It's something that was trained into us by a small number of companies because they had to get our minutes per day looking at their app up so they could hit their IPO targets. And so to me, that was a really distressing finding is that not only are we losing autonomy, but we're not really doing it even on our own volition. There's nothing fundamental about smartphone or social media technology that says you need to look at it all the time. That's a contrivance. And it's something that I think people are getting fed up with. Yeah. And to be fair, the tech companies that produce the phones merged a lot of the tools for hacking the brain and, and, you know, the emotion of the user into all of their apps. Right. And so every app now had game gamification and notifications and those things that draw you back time and time again. So I think you're right. When I first started using the iPhone, you know, there, there weren't those things, or at least they weren't as prevalent. And they weren't always on, right? And so you weren't always drawn back to the pick up the phone. So it's the gamification of the device, which has led to such a, it, it seems to me anyways, I should say, I don't want to make these broad statements, especially to someone who studied this thing ad nauseum. <laughs> so I should ask that as a question. Do you think it's the gamification that has been the primary culprit? Yes. I mean, it, it depends how broadly we define gamification, but basically, yes, it's it's a, a collection of strategies that helped make these apps irresistible. And mm-hmm. and so one of the big changes that led this way was, for example, when the social media companies changed the experience. So it was no longer about I post, you post, because I know you, I check what you post. That was the original social media experience. That was the original Web 2.0 vision. Mm-hmm. They replaced that with, I hit this app and there is an incoming stream of social approval indicators about me. There's mm-hmm. likes, which weren't there originally. To me. There's likes for my posts. There's retweets. There's favorites. There's people mm-hmm. auto-tagging me in their photos. So that that was one of the, the big changes because it meant uh, when you hit that button, sometimes you were going to see a lot of social approval indicators about you. And sometimes you were going to see no social approval indicators about you. And sometimes mm-hmm. you might see that people are upset at you. The way our brain is wired, we cannot resist pulling that virtual slot machine lever if those are the rewards that are going to come out <laughs> on the other end. And, and that was entirely <laughs> purposeful. And then they re-engineered the interfaces for all of these tools to have that gamification feel. So now you can have swipe down to reload. That's very slot mm-hmm. machine-esque, right? Or mm-hmm. maybe inla- they go to endless scrolling on certain types of interfaces so that, that you, you have no, no easy friction point that's going to get you to stop. Uh, Facebook mm-hmm. changed, you know, their engineers made the original notification badge gray because that was to Facebook palette. And the attention engineers came along and said, no, 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 it needs to be alarm red. Because that's what is more likely to create a sense of sort of distress or urgency in the human brain. You're going to be more likely to hit the app. And so it's a whole reinvention to be around an intermittent stream of social approval indicators, which has nothing to do with the original idea of social media. Wasn't there. It's completely contrived idea of a like button photo tags. That's all about driving eyeballs coupled with this sort of inter, in a interface reinvention. And I got to say, and not, not to sound too conspiratorial, but there's, there's a few pockets in academia um, that specialize on what they call persuasive technology. How do we redesign technologies to actually induce a desired action in the user? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the people who ended up innovating these ideas at the big tech companies came out of these research groups. And so this is all intentional. It's why when Sean Parker, the original Facebook president, more recently, a couple of years ago, came out and said, we're hacking your brain. 
you know, we're hackers and we figured out how to hack your brain. And I got to say, this was terrible news for the social media companies. The idea that we're exploiting you, this is addictive, it's making you unhappy. And I think this is a real reason why their PR people told the social media companies, you have to tack hard to another topic. And that's why you see the conversation almost entirely about things now like privacy and data portability and content moderation, because they had Mm -hmm. to change the subject. They cannot be talking about, are these services addictive and making people unhappy? Because that's a problem they can't solve. If they make the service less addictive, their revenue plummets. And so there's been this hard shift in the way they talk about things to say, well, let's deal with, with, with issues that maybe we can do something about. Maybe we can add end-to-end encryption to try to reduce privacy violations. Maybe we can keep tweaking content moderation standards. There's a reason why they're talking about that and not talking about their former president saying that we're hacking sure. your brains. It's because that's the <laughs> playground they want to be playing in. Right. Well, it's interesting, you know, it it takes us a while to study and uh, acknowledge at at a social level to study, acknowledge the damage that can be done at a broad level from from something like smoking or or alcohol addiction and then to take action against it. Do you think that's going to happen with, you know, brain hacking through these uh, electronic devices or is it just something that the government's going to be like, eh, whatever, it's just free market? Well, you know, you have to keep in mind, uh, we have to keep the historical example in mind. I think this is actually an interesting point. So there's been recently in the news, like let's say Chris Hughes, one of the co-founders of Facebook, and some of the presidential candidates coming out and saying, uh, social media, the big companies like Facebook are like big oil, and they need Mm -hmm. to be broken up. Mm -hmm. They're trusts that need to be broken up. But maybe the better analogy is actually big tobacco, because think about the, the government response to big tobacco was not we're going to somehow regulate tobacco companies to make cigarettes less harmful. Mm-hmm. The response to big tobacco was we're going to essentially tax it. <laughs> ed- well, yeah, but also educate the public that you probably shouldn't be smoking. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if that's not the more apt analogy here is that right. you know, the social media company, it's a, it, this is a, a free service that's based on extracting attention. Fundamentally, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be addictive. It's going to be exploitative. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to be addictive and, and to get as much use as possible. And so I don't know if the idea of, well, what we need to do is maybe just get more competition in this space is somehow the key. T- to me, I see this a little bit more through the lens of what, how we used to see big tobacco. And that's what I'm trying to do with my books is shift the culture to some degree where people no longer feel comfortable with the idea that this is something that they're just going to slavishly check on their phone. I mean, I think when something is unhealthy as opposed to uncompetitive, that's a different set of solutions you begin to look at. Right. Or another you know, option is that we're heading into an era where people, because of the uh, access to information and the diffusion of information, that a lot of people are demanding, you know, more social responsibility of the companies that they do business with as well as invest in. And so, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to find companies that exploit things that damage, you know, the social fabric, uh, having a harder and harder time, you know, staying in business. That's maybe a dream of mine, but <laughs> it's not happening right now. It doesn't seem, but you never know, right? You never know. And I mean, the funny thing about a company like Facebook is that it's it's historically unique. We, we've never before in history had a company that was so valuable. I mean, Facebook is valued around $500 billion. That's almost twice mm-hmm. ExxonMobil's valuation. And yet yeah. at the same time is so dispensable. Like, right. if, you, if you think about <laughs> Facebook, right? I If I came to you and said, look, I'm sorry, a court order, you're not allowed to look at Facebook. You'd be okay. You know, I haven't looked at Facebook in 10 years. Exactly. <laughs> right. And, and most people have the same reaction. Like, oh, it's okay. I mean, if right. it's there, I'm going to look at it. And yet it's worth $500 billion. Typically, when you have a company that valuable, it's because let's say they supply oil, you know, and our entire right. economy requires oil to run. Uh, and it's a necessity and it's a social good. But that's the weird place these social media companies are on is that their hooks into their audiences is very tenuous. And people can very right. easily leave a platform and go to another. Uh, I've been documenting pretty thoroughly a lot of people my age who are just leaving social media altogether. Like, well, I tried it. It was okay. I mean, they don't really play. They're an interesting source of distraction, but for most people, they're not at all dispensable. So they're in this rear precarious situation where, you know, Kim Kardashian says the right thing about Instagram tomorrow and they could see their user base plummet by 30%. That's a scary position right. to be in if you're one of these companies. Except that they own Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, the, who who they are valuable to are, is the, you know, the business world that's doing business on the internet and spending, you know, I know, I know companies spending millions of dollars a month you know, on Facebook, which is crazy just to attract eyeballs and 
hopefully convert some users. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason they're worth $500 billion is because the advertising works. But for that advertising to work, they have to get like the average millennial user now uses social media something like 141 minutes a day. That's what makes them so valuable is the fact that they've convinced a sizable fraction of the population to essentially dedicate the bulk of their leisure time to entering data about themselves in the databases. Right. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Let's talk specifically about your book. Now, I saw in some of the notes that Allison put together for me that um, you were hoping to get a small cadre of peeps to do a little experiment and to go off all social media and screens 100% for 30 days. And you ended up with a boatload of volunteers. How did that come about? And what were some of the surprising things about that study? So the original ask, and this was an email I sent to my mailing list. Uh, so it's a little bit under the radar. And I said, mm-hmm. look, I, I want to find volunteers to do this thing I'm calling a digital declutter, where, as you said, you take a 30-day break from all these optional technologies in your personal life. And then when you're done, the idea was you don't just go back to everything. You rebuild from scratch. So the, the 30 days, the idea of the 30 days, as opposed to like just doing this over a weekend, the idea of the 30 days was that you could actually have some time for reflection, experimentation, and figure out what do I really care about? What do I want to really spend my time on? Get some clarity on that so that when it comes time to add back tech, you can be much more intentional. I thought mm-hmm. I would get I don't know, a dozen volunteers. I mean, that's kind of a big ask. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I honestly thought like, yeah, it'd be about a dozen volunteers and I can talk to them all. I thought this is what, for my book, like there'll be a, there'll be 12 people who do this and I'll, I'll keep up right. with them on the phone. And then I can, I can kind of write about the experience in the book, what it was like for these 12 people. And instead 1600 people signed up. Wow. So it became an actual like research study. It became, yeah, it became like an actual research study. It was, it was surveys, in, and then you had to code the surveys and come out, you know, yeah. what, well, the, except, what the data was. Except for to be clear, I did, I, I purposefully did not uh, officially code the surveys or gather data in a quantitative okay. sense because then I would need IRB approval from my academic institution. So, but it, but it became like an unintentional sort of social movement. It ended up being covered in the New York Times. You know, uh, one of their reporters, roommates was doing it. And, <laughs> and so, nice. uh, and that that's what really helped me understand that there is such a there's such a pent up hunger for change here. But I'll have to say one of the big things I discovered from this experiment is that uh, a people were surprised to discover the extent to which their phone had pushed everything else out of their life that they used to care about. Mm-hmm. And they they had been telling themselves this story of like, well, look, I look at my phone occasionally when I have nothing else to do. It's idle time. I'm in the elevator. It's not a big deal. And that first day when they didn't have the phone to look at, they realized, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I have gotten rid of, I, I have stopped putting in the hard work required to actually build up a meaningful, a meaningful leisure life outside of just your professional activity. So that was the first thing I learned. Uh, the second thing I learned is that the people who just treated this like a detox, and I really hate the use of the word detox in context of technology, um, mm-hmm. because I think I think people are completely abusing the concept when they talk about digital detoxes, which which for most people they they mean a break, which is which is actually like a a pretty big insult to the substance abuse community, where where the whole notion of a detox is is to uh, make actionable change as the foundation mm-hmm. for a better life. The idea that you just take mm-hmm. a break from the thing that's bothering you is, but that's a bit of an aside. Uh, but the people who treated this 30 days like a de- like one of these digital detoxes and just tried to white knuckle it, like I'm just going to not use my phone, I use it too much, they almost all failed. Uh, hmm. Lasted mm-hmm. a week or two and we're back to it. The people who succeeded in making lasting change out of these 30 days were the people who took the 30 days and said, I'm going to get after it and figure out what is it that I really want to do? You know, what is important to me, especially outside of the workday? Like, what do I mm. want to spend my time doing? What activities are important? What gives me fire, right? What is this that I want to be about in my life? And the people who put in the time to figure that out, it was very easy for them after the 30 days were over to become very intentional about their tech because their filter was clear. If this tool can really help one of these things I care about, okay, I'll bring it in, but I'll put some rules around it to make sure it doesn't take over. And everything else, I don't care. 
because it's not about what's bad about those tools. It's about what's good about what I want to do. So the people who came mm -hmm. out of this now with clarity on this is what I want to do with my time. And I don't want things to get in the way of that. They mm -hmm. had a real easy time making lasting change. The, the idea that you just need to take a break, I think, is nonsensical. Mm -hmm. What you need is to declutter all this junk and rebuild something from scratch that's much better. I mean, there is a lot of parallel between recovery and that op actually, isn't there? Because, you know, if you, if you just go cold turkey and you do an all or nothing, and then when you're done with the cold turkey, you know, most people are right back on whatever it is that they're, they're doing, like you said. But if you go and deep dive into why that pattern you know, what are the roots of the pattern to begin with? What are you trying to replace with the pattern of constantly picking up the phone and the ease of that, right? You're, you're trying to, re actually, it's a surrogate for connection. And, 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 and any addiction is actually a surrogate for connection in, in its broadest sense, I think. So that's fascinating. So did you have like a little, you know, kind of like a 12 steps? Did you, have, did you have people say I'm powerless over the iPhone and <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to explore this and make amends or what were the, what was the structure beyond just set your phone aside? So the way, the way I ended up structuring it was, uh, the first, let's say, week, the first week or so, this is when people, I mean, the use of substance abuse analogy, the first week or so was when people most strongly felt a sort of withdrawal, where, where people most, most, most strongly felt this urge to check and found it difficult. After about a week, that urge to check something went away. And there, mm -hmm. the instructions I was giving people is you need to be incredibly active. You need to be expending mm -hmm. energy and it's self-reflection and experimentation were the key things. And then after the 30 days were over, uh, what I essentially had people do was work backwards from the values they had identified. So they come out of these 30 days saying, these are the things, the four things, the five things, the six things that I want to spend my time doing uh, outside mm -hmm. of work. And then I had them work backwards from those. And for each say, what's the best way, if any, to use technology to help this thing? Mm -hmm. Right. They would answer that question. They'd find, you know, and because in a lot of cases, like things that are really important, tech can give you a huge boost. Right. right. I mean, I think technology can be a huge accelerant to living a value driven life. And, and I've never doubted that, but it requires intention. So for each of these things that's valuable, is there a way you can use tech? that's going to be a big accelerant. And if so, though, the key rule I gave them was you can't just say, I now use this tool. You also have to say, how and when do I use it? You had to set those mm -hmm. fences on what devices do I use it? Is it on my phone? Is it only on the computer? And when do I use it? Do I use it just mm -hmm. all the time? Do I just check it on Sundays? Uh, those two questions often push the cost-benefit ratio decidedly in the advantage of the user and, and away from the company. And so I had them go through that process at the end of the 30 days. And what they're left with is a new technological life built from scratch on a foundation of their values with some careful rules around how they, how they actually engage with the tools. Mm, I love that. So you're taking care of the, the I, the self-awareness, and then the it, the structure. But there is that third component, and that's the we, the, the people in your life. And, you know, I can imagine people after this 30-day detox, they, they do what you said. You know, let's say they have some skillful means and they, they take care of when and how they're going to use the tech. And because they now know why it's important, again, almost dovetailing with your deep work, they know what to say no to. But then if they keep hanging out with the same people who are constantly on their phone, you know, during social gatherings or that's how they connect, then I could see how that could be a jarring situation. You might have to make some changes, which could be uncomfortable. Well, the, yeah, it, there is the uncomfortable aspect is the always being around people with their phones when you're not. Yeah. And lots of people reported, yeah. you know, one dad was telling me how surreal it is to be at the playground with his kids. Because right. he's the only parent there who's not looking down. And he had never noticed right. it before. Um, a, 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 another young woman was telling me how she has a really hard time uh, going out to eat with her brother now because she, she just gets so frustrated <laughs> at how yeah. often he's looking at the phone. But the place where actually, this is kind of interesting, I, I was concerned that people were going to find that their, their social lives were impoverished perhaps after mm -hmm. they made some of the changes that this process would lead you to. But actually the opposite happened because one of the big revelations that, that people have going through this process is that the sociality that they really care about is where they actually sacrifice their time and attention on behalf of family, close friends, and their community. And they mm -hmm. actually say, I'm going to go and sacrifice, you know, I'm going to go to you and we're going to do something. And I'm going to spend time just with you. Or I'm, I'm, my morning is put aside to help you with this. Or I'm coming to watch this thing you're doing. I'm making a sacrifice on your behalf 
to show my commitment to you and our social connection. People rediscovered that that's actually the core of a thriving sense of sociality. And so Mm -hmm. what they lost when they spend less time doing the constant text messages and, and social, particularly social media messages is sure there's this sort of whole stratum of weak tie connections that they begin become disconnected from. But there's no real good yes. evidence that human beings really need to maintain a lot of sort of weak tie connections with people they barely know. And they found that by instead putting much more energy and sacrifice into strong social connections, they come out of this transformation feeling more connected, less lonely, and more socially accepted than, than they can remember in many years. Yeah, I can believe that. You know, this is kind of a more of a like a, a, a process thing. But what I found is because I've been working on some of these these things as well uh, recently, is like, for instance, I go out to dinner with my wife and I, I will leave my phone home. But it took a little bit of work because I found so many, there's so many functions now that are, that are app-enabled and it's going to get worse and worse with 5G when 5G comes down the pike. But like, you know, paying, for instance, paying. Right. And so I would bring my phone because you know, oftentimes that's how I would pay or I would track receipts or, you know, there's like two or three things that might be involved in a transaction, which is all on my phone. And then I would bring the phone because I would be thinking, okay, in case of emergency, need phone. Well, that's true too. How was she going to call AAA and blah, blah, blah. So, so now like one of us will bring a phone for the purpose of, of emergency, you know, son needs to get a hold of us or whatnot. And then I'll just bring a credit card or cash, you know, so, and we'll just, we just will keep the phone either in the car or, you know, we don't bring it out. It took a lot of discipline, you know what I mean? To figure that out. Simple thing, but, but not easy for sure. And then there's, there's other examples of this where, you know, one of the primary benefits was this, um, what, what Peter Diamandis would call a dematerialization where now everything fits in this digital device. But then that's one of the reasons why we can't really leave home without it, so to speak, you know, it's a real problem. Well, I'm challenged to say. So one of the one of the trends I've seen is that now because other devices like laptops and tablets have become so small, is that you increasingly see people who are redumbing down their smartphone. It's like, okay, I can make mm, calls right, on this right. thing. I have apps, you know, I have like the map app on this thing. But if I need to do anything productive, you know, I have a, an iPad mini with a cellular connection on which I have all those type of tools. And when I'm in a work context, I can bring that with me. But when I'm out to dinner, oh, okay. I don't have to carry all these tools with me. People are minimizing the phone back towards the original Steve Jobs vision of this is right. a thing that does a few things well. I don't need it to be everything. And, and there's actually some companies now um, that are creating light, versions of the phone again, right? It's like the old flip phone. In fact, I tried one I bought off like an Indiegogo campaign called the light phone. And unfortunately as an early, it was an early adopter type thing and it didn't work. Um, but the idea was that you were, it transferred, it used your phone number. And so you, you plugged a little code into the iPhone and then phone, a phone or phone calls that came in would go to the light phone. And then the second version had just phone and text. So I think that that's kind of a neat, you know, hack around, so to speak, that, that kind of gets gets the job done there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think we're, we're, we're rethinking this idea that uh, the more options we have with us at any time, the better we are. That's a very engineering mindset, an optimization mindset, right. that it's always strictly better to have more options, more tools with you. But I think the sort of right. humanist mindset is we got to be pretty wary about what those tools are because we're not just a cool optimization algorithm. We're actually a sort of hot and messy human being, and we have to acknowledge that. Right. So the, the meta message here is balance, right? So don't, don't throw out the tech, leverage it appropriately for the right reasons at the right time. You know, don't pretend that it satisfies your need to connect and to be intimate as a human being because evidence is out that that's false, right? So, so to protect your time to be human, right? And, and to go deep in that regard as well, because it feels good and it's, it's what we're meant to do. Yeah. Well, I agree. So, I was going to say, to summarize that, that don't use tech as an end. It is only right. useful when it comes to human flourishing when you're deploying tech for very specific intentional purposes that you care about. If As soon as the tech becomes an end in itself, that's when we start to see problems. I love that. Awesome. And with your book, Digital Minimalism, does everyone need to do a 30 day, I mean, are you recommending do this 30 day plan or, you know, what's, let me ask you this another way. Where do people start? Like if they're listening to this and they, and they park their car, getting ready to walk in, what's the first 
action or first you know few actions they can take to to start moving in this direction? Well, what I've discovered is that ultimately you probably have to do something as as extreme as this 30-day challenge, especially if you're okay. pretty deep into a world of the phone. You, you just need that time. You just need that space. You just need that clean break. That being mm-hmm. said, there's some things you can do in advance to get in shape for the 30-day challenge, just like I wouldn't want to go to you know, one of these Kakura sessions without having right. first <laughs> done a little bit of jogging. Uh, and so a, a few things you can do to get ready before doing the 30-day challenge is A, Take off your phone, any app where someone makes money off of your attention when you tap on it. You don't have to quit anything yet, but just get rid of the easy access. Uh, And then two, maybe start doing some work to reintroduce high quality leisure into your life so that when it comes time to do the extreme 30 day complete reset, you're not Mm -hmm. looking at the first day of the first morning of the first day and saying, I have no idea what to do with myself. You already have put back into place some activities that you know for sure are going to give you meaning. Mm. I love that. Kale, thanks so much. Um, the book is Digital Minimalism. Before, can you give us a, a snapshot of what your next project is? You mentioned you're already digging in. Yeah. Or is it top secret? Uh, no, it's not. I mean, so I'm, I'm in the early stages of writing a book tentatively titled A World Without Email. And no, it's no, once no. again about tech and the workplace. And it's about some of the unintentional consequences that happened when we introduced low friction digital communication to the workplace unintentional negative consequences and the shifts Mm. I think are coming, the sort of radical shifts to how we work that are going to then correct for those unintentional consequences. Oh, cool. Can't wait to see that one. Kel, thanks again for your time. Keep up the great work. And um, I know you're about ready to go deep on something. So uh, stay focused. (laughs) It's my pleasure, Mark. (laughs) Do the work. All right. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate you. All right, folks, uh, Digital Minimalism, check it out. And also, I highly, highly recommend Deep Work if you haven't read it. I mean, that is a a classic and um, really important. In fact, I would say those two kind of go hand in glove. And uh, support Kel um, any way you can. He's he's doing great work. It's really important. So I appreciate him. And I appreciate you for listening and for paying attention to the Unveiled Mind podcast. Um, This is a lot of fun, but I think it's also um, important conversations so that we collectively can evolve ourselves and evolve culture to be healthier and more balanced and more unbeatable. So appreciate you. And until next time, stay focused, go deep, and uh, let's practice a little digital minimalism. Did I say that right? Minimalism. That's a big word for me. <laughs> Hoo-yah. See you next time. Divine out. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UDT. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 